Hello, welcome to my fourth ever podcast, How Not to Suck at the Stocks. This is your host, Dan Hansen, and as per usual, let's start off with two disclaimers. One, I am not a financial expert. Please do not confuse the, the mess coming out of my mouth as actual, actionable financial advice. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Disclaimer number two, this podcast is extremely not safe for work, so please consider yourself warned. All right, so let's see. So I submitted a question thread on the investing discussion subreddit, and when I first posted it, I did notice that the subreddit was kind of dead, but I figured, ah, there's enough posts, getting some comments, getting some views, we'll try it out here. Yeah, you know, bad idea. Uh, didn't get a single question from the investing discussion subreddit, so uh, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for nothing, dicks. But I did have a friend uh, ask me to look at two um, different companies for him last week. So one of the companies is Corning Glassworks. So over the weekend, I just read through the 10K and did some half-assed analysis, which um, I actually think that should have been the name of this podcast, half-assed analysis. But it's too late to make the change now, so instead, I'm just going to call this segment Half-Assed Analysis. And, of course, the first company, Corning Glassworks, the ticker is GLW. Now, if you were one of the literally 11s of people who listened to my last show, then you know the first question I always ask myself is, do I understand the business? Well, last week, it was a Dollar General. It's a discount retailer here in America. So the answer was was. Pretty convincing, yes. I'd like to be able to tell myself. This week, it is a very firm no. I have essentially no idea um, about the glass business. And I think if you're truly honest with yourself, you're going to find that that's the case for most businesses. There are thousands of stocks out there. Uh, You can't pretend to understand all of them. Okay, or even a majority of them. And I really think the more honest with yourself you are about um, what you actually understand versus what you don't, you're be better off. And when you come across a stock that you don't understand, a business you don't understand, um, there's really two buckets I throw them into. Is it bucket A, where, where I'll put like pharmaceuticals, where I, I, I don't understand pharmaceuticals. And I'm comfortable not understanding pharmaceuticals or like women's fashion or any type of fashion for that matter. I'm comfortable going to my grave, not understanding fashion, why someone would buy one purse over another or like one pair of shoes over a different. I'm perfectly fine with that. I don't, I can be a very successful investor without having an encyclopedic knowledge of every industry on uh, God's green earth. And then there's bucket number two which is where I believe Corning falls into, where I don't understand it today, but I I do think it's in the realm of possibility where I could understand it. Maybe I'd have to read uh, some books on the glass industry in general or, um, you know, this company in particular. Um, But just knowing what I know now, I'm I'm starting from zero. And uh, so if this was a company for my own personal portfolio, I'd probably just disregard it and keep on looking for something I do understand, somewhere where I wasn't looking, or pardon me, where I wasn't starting from ground zero. Now, one thing I should, I should qualify all this by saying that you don't have to be an industry expert in order to invest in a stock. That helps. The more knowledgeable you are about an industry, clearly the better. Uh, my only point is um, you don't want to be a, just a complete abject noob on the subject. Um, but I am. 
And uh, But the show must go on. So we're going to venture outside my very minimal circle of competence. And we're going to go deep outside my comfort zone. And we're going to take a look at Corning Glass Works. Uh, now, you may be asking yourself, well, how does this guy not understand glass? It, it seems like a pretty simple product. Well, it's more complicated than that. And even if I did understand glass... It doesn't necessarily mean I understand the glass business. Why would someone buy one piece of glass over another? Why, you know, what, what different types of glass that consumers would even be looking for? I, I, it's alien to me. So rather than me trying to explain the business, I'm actually going to read off from their 10K. Um, these are their five reported segments. I'm going to read these verbatim. Display Technologies manufactures glass substrates for flat panel uh, liquid crystal displays. Those are LCDs. Those are like in televisions. Those are in like your iPhone screens, for example. And even though I know what that is, which is a start, I I don't know why I would care about what LCD screen is in my TV or on my phone. If anything, like Corning, I always know them as making the the screens for iPhones, which you look at those things the wrong way and they fucking break. So I don't understand why Apple would keep using Corning other than perhaps they're a low cost uh, provider. I, you know, I, I don't get it myself. Number two and then these are probably in order of uh, volume, like revenue volume. And if they're not, it's a close enough approximation. But number two on the list, optical communications. Manufacturers, carrier network, and enterprise network components for the telecommunications industry. Once again, I don't know what a carrier network component is, let alone why someone would buy one over the other. So we're not starting from a place of confidence here. Environmental technologies, manufacturers, ceramic substrates, and filters for automotive and diesel applications. Okay, I, I still don't know what a substrate is. I mean, I, you'd think a more intelligent man would have figured that out after reading the 10K, but here we are. Uh, specialty materials, manufacturers, products that provide more than 150 material formulations for glass, glass ceramics, and fluoride crystals to meet demand for unique customer needs. Before reading this sentence, I didn't realize that fluoride and crystals were words you could put together to make its own thing, let alone how it would meet unique customer needs. And last, but I guess least, life sciences. Manufacturers glass and plastic labware, equipment, media, and reagents. I don't even know how to pronounce the word. Reagents. Reagents. To provide workflow solutions for scientific applications. Okay. So just because I've seen Breaking Bad and I've taken high school chemistry and I know what a beaker is, doesn't mean I can tell you why some asshole would prefer a beaker with one logo on it over another logo. So once again, we're not starting from a place of confidence with this. But the show must go on. And I think there's some education here. Because you will see, we are starting, we're trying to build a house on sand here. And since I can't answer this first question honestly, if I understand the business or not, you're going to see how the rest of this analysis uh, quickly goes to shit. So this is a case study in... uh, Moronacy, if moronacy is a word, then most likely it's not. But here we go anyway. The second question I always ask myself is, will the company be around in 10 or 20 years? Well, who the fuck knows? If I, don't, if I can't answer the first question, I can't answer the second one, you see? So that, that's why that's my first question. Um, I, a shot in the dark, probably, in 10, I mean, I guess, probably, maybe. I mean, I don't, I don't really know. So not off from a good start. Uh, the third question I ask myself is, what are the firm's competitive advantages, if any? Well, as you can see, you know, here we go. It, it all comes tumbling down. I, I, I'm, I'm completely lost. Uh, some companies, you know, you read the 10K and, uh, you know, it, 
you you already know everything they're trying to tell you. Like you already understand the business so well that you don't really find too much new information in there. You're just kind of gleaming maybe through the footnotes to find like little nuggets of new information. But then there's companies like this where you read the whole 10K and I, I just have no clue what's going on. But that's not going to stop me from doing some half-assed analysis. So I looked at the last uh, 10 years of their financial statements and uh, one thing really stuck out to me is very troubling. And um, let me just start off with kind of generically how I think of a an income statement. Like this is Dan's version of a run-of-the-mill, God-fearing income statement. At the top is revenue. Then you take out your cost of goods sold. You're left with your gross profit. Okay. Then you take out your operating expenses, things like uh, selling general and administrative, things like R&D, um, depreciation, modernization, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay, that leaves you with your operating income, also called EBIT, E-B-I-T, earnings before interest and taxes. I always want to say before income taxes. No, it's before interest and taxes. Okay. And then from your EBIT, your operating income, that's when you take out, well, if it's before in, pff, interest and taxes, then of course you're going to now take out your interest expense. You're going to take out your taxes, among other things, and you're left with your net income. So very quickly, you start with your sales, you take out the cost of that, you get your gross, you take out your operating expenses, you get to operating income, you take out your essentially finance, uh, interest and taxes, and then you're left with your net income. The idea is it's supposed to start off with a big number and then get whittled down as you take out expenses. And the bottom line is the net income, which is supposed to be the smallest of all of them, um, of all the incomes. Um the problem here is we don't really see that with this company. Now, it's not unusual to see it once in a while with a company, but in this company, it tends to be the norm rather than the exception. Looking at the last 10 years, it seems about half the years, you end up with a net income, which is greater than the operating income. And so one reason why I think this is a great company to analyze uh, on this podcast is because it gives some good examples of why that may be the case. So let's look at... Okay, where is it? Great, okay. So looking at the fiscal year 2016, we are going to have operating income of $1.4 billion, and we're going to have net income of $3.7 billion. So the net income is almost double the operating income. And the largest contributor to that, the one we're going to be talking about, is this line item called Gain on Realignment of Equity Investment. Okay, you might be like, well, what the fuck does that mean? Well, it's they sold some equity. That's what that means. They had a they had ownership in a company and they sold it and they got money from it. So that's a one that's a one off, right? You can't expect to see that every year. And they provide some more detail on it. This is page uh, fifty six. So it just kind of tells you kind of exactly what happened here. Uh, really briefly, I'll I'll just read one sentence out of this whole thing. Under the terms of the transaction agreement, Corning Exchange with Dow Corning, its fifty percent stock interest in Dow Corning for 100% of the stock of a newly formed entity which holds an equity interest in Hemlock Semiconductor Group, also known as HSG, and approximately $4.8 billion in cash. Um, what happened to the rest of the cash? I don't, I don't know. Probably other, I don't know, other, other business. I, I, I read this thing over the weekend. I forget exactly what happened to the other two-point-odd billion. It's kind of an important question, but one we will not be answering today. In any case... Uh, so that's a one-time 
uh, event. And so the reason why that's important is if you just looked at the bottom line, that the $3.7 billion, you go, oh my God, look how much money they're making. The PE is so low. You see, that's how you can fall into a value trap. If you're just looking at the bottom line, if you're just looking at the PE without really knowing how the sausage is made, you end up saying, oh, look, it has a PE of six. That's very cheap. Well, it's a PE of six because of a one-time sale of a, of a company. And they can't just sell off you know, shares of companies they own on for ad infinitum and expect to have this huge runway of growth. So let's actually look at the next example, which comes from their uh, TTM. That's the trailing 12 months. That's the last, uh, you know, the last 12 months. So there's no other way to say it, I guess. And so once again, they have an operating income of now it's 1.8 billion and they have a net income of 2.4 billion. And now it's for a different reason. Now it's because of this line item, a 1.4 uh, gain coming from a translated earnings contract. And once again, I, I, I don't think I noted where they talked about that, unfortunately. But in any case, that it once again sounds like a one-time gain. Um, you don't see that every year. Looking back at their financial statements, you do see it historically, but you don't see it every year. And so my point here is it, it'd be you wouldn't want to use net income to value this company because their net income is uh, so irregular. It, their net income is not, it's not so much that it's irregular because you can have lumpy cash flows, and that's okay. What I mean is it's irregular in the sense uh, the profits aren't coming from a sustainable source. It's not coming from the, the core business. It's coming from these kind of one-offs to belabor the point. And so... For a company like this, I would actually venture, and again, grain of salt, I remember this whole analysis, this half-assed analysis is built on a house of sand. Remember remember that. But I'm just looking at numbers here. I'm just looking at numbers. Um, I would venture a guess, keyword guess, can't make, make enough qualifiers on this, that a better way to value this company would be to look at something like uh, enterprise value over EBIT. And I'm going to explain what that is, and that'll actually wrap up the show. We're already at 14 minutes. So, okay. Before I get to what an enterprise value is, I have to really quick explain what a market cap is. So a market cap, you take the number of shares, which can be found on their latest 10Q on the front page, and you times it by the price per share, which, of course, can be found anywhere. You multiply those two together, you get the market cap. Okay. Then you want to subtract the cash they have on the books, add the debt, add the preferred shares, and that gets you to your enterprise value. The enterprise value is what you could expect to pay for the business if you actually bought it. Now, let me explain why you subtract cash, because it is something that seems counterintuitive at first. You may think cash is a good thing. Why am I subtracting it from its value? Well, I can explain very simply. Imagine you went to a place to buy a suit, and you buy a, you buy a suit jacket for 300 bucks, let's say. And you get home, you try on the jacket, and in your breast pocket, you find a $100 bill. Okay, cool. So how much did you really spend on this jacket? I mean, you did pay 300 but then you, there was $100 of cash inside the breast pocket. So really, in my estimation, you've only actually paid 200 for that jacket, right? Well, it works the same way with a business. If you pay $300 million for a business, they're sitting on $100 million in cash. Well, you get that cash once you own the business, so you effectively only pay $200 million for the cash. That's why you deduct cash from the market cap to get to your enterprise value. And you just kind of reverse the logic there to get to your debt, um, you know, if you were to, like, let's say you were to buy a comic book shop, for example, 
And no, no, I got a better example. Uh, so my apartment, I'm actually, I'm leaving my apartment. My landlord offered um, for me to buy it outright, this condo. And I declined. But the point of this story is if I agreed to buy it from her for, let's say, 80, I have no idea what it's worth, $80,000, let's say. Well, after I buy it from her, I found out that she's actually behind on her HOA payments. And so I owe the HOA like, you know, 2,500 bucks. Well, then the, the condo didn't cost me 80000 right? It really cost me, you know, eighty two five. Right, because that liability now translates to me, so I'm on the hook for that HOA fee now. So that's why you subtract cash and you add debt to your market cap. Uh, preferred shares, I won't get into that too much here. I'll just say a good way to think of preferred shares are um, it's it's basically a form of debt. It's a non-tax advantage form of debt. Uh, like I said, I won't get into it, but you do add its value to your market cap to get enterprise value. So uh, the market cap was $26 billion. Uh, we added f- about $4.5 billion in cash. We subtracted... Uh, pff, we subtra- I'm making the mistake myself. We subtract $4.5 billion from cash. We add $9.7 in debt. We add $2.3 in preferred shares. We end up with an enterprise value of about $34 billion. So a lot larger than the market cap. And from that, to get the EV over EBIT, we just subtract the enterprise value from the EBIT, which is, of course, the operating income. That gives us with an EV over EBIT of 19. I think typically you want to see about a 10 there if you're using market multiples. I believe that's the standard, kind of like how 15 is considered average for PE. I believe 10 is considered average for EV over EBIT. I honestly don't use multiples like that. And to be fair to this company, to throw them a bone, I think I would actually add, they do have a line item in here after operating income called equity in earnings of affiliated companies, which... uh, that's simply they own shares of other companies, and that's just the proportion of net income they get from those companies. So that that is sustainable. That you know, that I hit the mic. That would be fine. So just adding that to their operating income and recalculating their EV over EBIT, you get down to sixteen, which is closer to ten, but still not a screaming deal. And just, just you know, real quick, their PE would be eleven. Okay. And, but again, the PE is looking in the, the overall market is like over 20, if you're listening to this, like far in the future, um, which, which, which you wouldn't be, but let's just say you were. Um, so the PE is 11. So it might look cheap if you just went by, you know, PE. But if you really dug deep into what's affecting those earnings, uh, you might see that it's not so cheap. So that's the long and the short of it, mostly the most of the long of it. Um, if you enjoyed that, if you have a company that you would like me to give some half-assed analysis on, then if you're listening to this, uh, cause you know me from Facebook, then you can just DM me there. And if you're listening to this, cause you know me from Reddit, then you can DM me there at wild underscore space. Everything is spelled correctly. Wild underscore space. All right. This was Dan Hansen with the fourth episode of how not to suck at the stocks. This whole podcast is for entertainment purposes only. And I hope you had a good time. Okay. Adios. Till next week.